I wonder what did you look at this week? What did you look at this week? Think about all the things throughout the week that you looked at. Could be things on your computer or a book or as you were driving somewhere or at work or as you were walking or uh, maybe in the newspaper or your kids or grandkids or spouse or coworkers, what, who the people you looked at. Uh, or animals you looked at, or nature that you looked at. What did you look at this week? And think about that word, look, or the word, see. And we use the word, look, to describe a lot of things that we do in life. You might say, I'm going to look at a new house tomorrow. I'm going to look at a new house this weekend. Or we say, uh, you know, if you are somebody who does eBay stuff or auctions, oh, I'm watching this thing, uh, or if you use Facebook Marketplace, when you uh, like kind of tag something on Facebook that I'm watching this, like you're watching this item at an auction, or you're watching this thing on Facebook, you're watching it, you're looking at it to see when it's going to be sold or what the price is. Uh, or you might say, if there's something you're researching, you say, I'm looking into this, or there's something that went wrong, there's like a problem in your house or, or something, I'm looking into this, or your car is broken, I'm having the mechanic look into this. The word look we use for lots of things. And we use it a lot to talk about the future. We use vision terms, like seeing terms. I'm interested to see how the election turns out. I wonder what, you know, so wondering isn't, but I'm wondering what that's going to look like. I'm wondering what that's going to look like, what it's going to be like. I'm curious to see what he does, what my boss does, or what this is going to look like. And then we use other things. I'm worried what this is going to, how this is going to turn out. You know, we so we look into, we try to look into the future, and then we're worried about what's it going to look like. What am I going to see when I get there? And we can talk about uh, looking forward. I'm really looking forward to, or I'm not looking forward to, or oh, there's nothing to look forward to. Like we're feeling down. Like man, this week has been really tough at school or at my job, and I'm not really looking forward to anything. It's been kind of hard in life lately because I don't have a vacation planned, I don't have a break planned, I don't have anything fun planned. I'm just, nothing to look forward to. Or there's a big test. I'm not looking forward to that test. I'm not looking forward to that project at work. Or we say, I'm really looking forward to this thing. I'm looking. I'm not looking. I'm looking. And I want you to think about this. What you look at shapes what you look like. What you're looking at is shaping what you look like. The things that you're looking at in life shape what you look like. They are forming you and they're shaping you. And I hope that we can see that as we go through this passage. What you look at shapes what you look like. We're in our final week of this sermon series called Good News with an exclamation point. And we've been focused on the gospel that uh, when I was praying about what to go through for this series, I was seeing Man, our life, our, our world's just been in kind of chaos. Like everything's just been turned upside down. This is not the year any of us would have planned. But what hasn't changed? What hasn't changed about our lives? And what hasn't changed is who God is, what he's done, and who we are as a result of what he's done if you've trusted in Jesus. And this week we're finishing a three-week theme in this series about what we've been saved from. And it's a bit of a grammar lesson because... 
you can think of what we've been saved from and our salvation in, in three tenses, past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. So we have, we have been, past, saved from the penalty of our sin. It's been wiped out. You, when you trust in Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. You've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous. That is all taken care of. God is for you, not against you. But in the present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. There's a part that God has set us free from the power of it, that you can live free of it. But there's also some parts of your life where, okay, sin is still at work there, and I need to get let that go and get out of it. So we're being set free from the power of sin. We're more and more living uh, in, uh, in the likeness of Jesus and what we're supposed to be. And then future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin is still present in our lives, even when we are Christians, but there will be a day when it is no longer present in our lives. So salvation is past, present, and future. And you can see this throughout the Bible as you read it. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And today we're looking at salvation as a future event. We will be saved from the presence of sin. And the passage we'll be hearing from is 1 John 228 through 33 that Brian read for us. And this is part of a letter uh, written by a guy named John. He lived in the first century, 2,000 years ago, and he was one of Jesus' closest followers. He wrote the Gospel according to John that you can read. He read, wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He also wrote uh, the book of Revelation. And so John has written quite a bit for us. And he's one of Jesus' closest followers. In fact, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he felt this deep connection with Jesus, and he felt the special privilege of being loved by Jesus. And he has a unique writing style. He doesn't follow a, like a logical flow of thought where it's like, and this, and therefore, and uh, for this reason. But he has kind of the, he talks in cycles. He starts a topic, and then he does another topic, and then he kind of comes back to that same topic that he was talking about before. And so we're going to have a big idea for today. And that's going to be our center, and then we're going to do uh, seven other big idea principles around the center. So the big idea is this. Uh, being children of God changes how we look. 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 That's our center. And from there we're going to hear seven big idea principles for how God, how being children of God changes the way we look. And this is both, you know, you look at someone and like, oh, they look different, but also you can look different in how, how you're looking at things or what you're looking at or where you're looking. And in our passage, John is going to introduce us to Jesus' second coming. Jesus came the first time. He was born of a virgin. He came to die for our sins. And he came humble, and in a humble way, but he promised he would one day return in glory to judge the earth and to bring salvation to those who follow him. We're going to divide our passage into these two actions that Jesus is going to do, um, judgment and salvation. So let's start with judgment at Jesus' second coming in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. So judgment at Jesus' coming in verses 28 and 29 of 1 John chapter 2. He says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence 
and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so what will Jesus come again to do? Jesus said in John 5 that God, his heavenly Father, had given him authority uh, to judge the earth, that God the Father uh, is you know, creator of all things, and he had given all authority over to Jesus to judge the earth. In the Apostles' Creed, in the back of our songbook, if you want to, to look at it, is you know, these ancient creeds from the early centuries of the church. The Apostles' Creed, number 43, uh, if you're scanning down, right in the middle, it says, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the Nicene Creed, right on the next page, says, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And John here says there will be two types of people when Jesus comes again. Only two types. There's no gray. Just two types of people. Those who have confidence and those who shrink from him in shame. So first, what does it mean to have confidence when Jesus comes again? This word means openness and access to God, this confidence. Not kind of just like, uh, like I've got it all together, but there's this confidence of like, oh, I have this openness to God. I'm not afraid of Him. I have this uh, access to Him. It means we have freedom towards God, not because of anything we've done, but because of who He is and what He's done on our behalf uh, to make us right with Him. And, and John writes later in this letter, in chapter 4, he says this in chapter 4, verses 17 and 19. He says, but By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So John says some people will have confidence when Jesus returns. They will want to see him. They will be waiting for him with eager expectation because they love him and they've been loved by him. They've first been loved by God and so they know, man, God's love has taken care of my sin and I have, have that perfect love has cast out my fear. I'm not afraid. I'm confident. I'm free to, before him. And so it's kind of like if you imagine you're waiting for someone to come to your house. Like, you know, grandma and grandpa are coming. You're just excited. It's like Christmas or something. They're bringing you gifts. And you're sitting there waiting eagerly at the window, waiting for them to arrive. And you haven't seen them in a really long time. You wanted to see them. They're bringing all these gifts. And that's what it's like. It's like we're waiting at the window for Jesus to come. He's bringing this awesome gift. of He's bringing uh, something that we've been waiting and longing for. And we want to see him. It's like, he's coming. I'm going to get to see him. And there's not this fear and the shame and we're like oh he's, what's it going to be like oh it's going to be mean and we're like we want him to come but there will also be people who see that king jesus has come to judge the world and it will strike nothing but terror into them they will shrink back in shame and this is describing people who have lived against god's will and never trusted in jesus and never followed his commands or if they did they only did it superficially on a surface level. And maybe they fooled the people around them, but they knew they never, they weren't fooling God. And so now when Jesus is here, it's like, 
oh boy, I know I haven't fooled him. You know, sometimes you can fool, uh, you know, certain people. Like maybe you can fool your coworkers, maybe you can fool your siblings, or maybe you can fool certain people in your family. But you know, the person who walks in that you can't fool, and all of a sudden it strikes terror in you and fear. And when he, Jesus comes back, people will know there is no more hiding. And this shrinking back in shame is the, is the shame of rejection. They know that they don't know Jesus. And they know that Jesus doesn't know them. And so there's this, this, this terror and this dread. And so what makes the difference between confidence and the shame of rejection? How can we have confidence on the day of judgment? So this is our first big idea principle. God's children look to Jesus in surrender. God's children look to Jesus in surrender. That's what God's children do. This is how uh, being God's children changes the, how we look. God's children look to Jesus in surrender. John uses the word abide. God's children look to Jesus in surrender. And John says uh, they abide in him in that first verse there, verse 28. And abide is a word for staying someplace or uh, dwelling someplace. And we sometimes say in English, uh, welcome to my humble abode. Welcome to my humble abode. And that's a noun for a place that you abide. You abide in an abode. And to abide in Jesus means you come into relationship with Jesus and you don't leave that relationship. It's like Jesus, if you're imagining him, as he's your abode and you uh, abide in him. It's like Jesus, you abide in an abode. And so you, are, you make him your abode. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to enter into a relationship with Jesus and stay there? And it's always described in the Bible as trust and obedience. And that our mission statement, there's a lot of other words too that the Bible uses, you know, worship, trust, obedience, the fear of the Lord, and, and, and so forth. And we've summarized it in our mission statement as a church as surrender. You surrender to him as your Lord, who saves you from your sin, and who directs it and commands your life. You surrender to him. And so on the day of judgment, this means two things. First, if we're surrendering to Jesus, we will know that We've been saved from the penalty of our sin. We're justified. We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We're beloved children of God. And our sin is not counted against us. And God's love casts out our fear. And so we can have confidence. Jesus is coming back, and there's nothing on my record that is going to have to be a problem here because he has saved me from the penalty of my sin. And we need to hear the reality that there will only be two types of people when they die or when Jesus returns. Because I think we sometimes avoid the reality that people around us are going to hell. And we need to hear that there's only two types of people. There are saved people, and there are unsaved people. Every person you walk past, every person you work with, every person in your family, every neighbor, every waiter, every cashier, is either saved or unsaved. And this is not something to mess around with. This is not something for you to mess around with if you are messing around with it. If, you're, if you are fooling any of us, you can't fool him. If Jesus came back right now, would you have confidence? Or would you shrink back in shame? Because you know that he doesn't know you and he's going to reject you. And your loved ones, would they have confidence? There's only two types of people, saved and unsaved. And you can't control whether someone believes or not. You can't control that. But you can control whether you pray for them, 
whether you tell them about Jesus. And God has put people in each of our lives, friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers. And I believe he has done so for a purpose. And I want to encourage you to start praying for those people. And God may have put you in their life to be a part of changing their eternal destiny of where they are going on the day that Jesus returns or on the day that they die. And so first, if we are surrendering to Jesus, we will know that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. And second, if we are surrendering to Jesus, we, will, we are being saved from the power of sin. And this brings us to our second big idea principle, is that God's children look like him more and more. God's children look like him more and more. God's children look like him more and more. This is in verse 29. John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John gives this principle. And he gives a lot of these principles. You can go through First John and write down all these little principles he gives where he says, you know, whoever does this, uh, this is what's true of them. But here he's talking about people born of God. And Jesus talked about, about this in John's Gospel he wrote. You know, every, he told this religious teacher, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he said in John uh, 1, 12 and 13, uh, John wrote, To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How? Who were not born of blood, or of the will of man, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And so Jesus taught, in order to enter the kingdom of God, someone has to be born again. And when someone believes in Jesus, God does a, a miracle in their life. The, the person who believes in Jesus becomes born again. That, and that's how you become a child of God, not only with the rights and the privileges of being a child of God, but now you're giving a new nature. Now you know, a child looks like their father, and they look like their mother. And so now someone born of God now has a new nature. Now they start to look like their heavenly father. They're given a new nature. And John makes this point over and over again. If you've been born of God, you will start acting like it. You will share traits and characteristics of God. And this is because... Someone born of God has been saved from the power of sin. You no longer have this sin nature as the power. You now have the power of God inside of you, that he's given you your Holy Spirit. You've been born of God. He's broken the chains that held sins, that held you in power, in sin's power, so you can live a new life and set free. And John is using this as a test for this church because they had some trouble recently. They had some people in their church that were telling them, hey, we know a better way to know God. And then they were teaching people it, and then they eventually left this church. And so then the people in the church were left saying, okay, this is tough. We just had a bunch of people that we knew, who we were friends with, who we were loving, and they were all telling us we're doing it wrong. And then they all left. And so are we doing things right? And also we're hurt now because all these relationships were saying these nasty things, and then they all left us. And so we've lost relationships, and we've, now our confidence has been shaken. And he's trying to tell them, uh, no, you can be assured. This is how you can be sure that you are born of God. Are you practicing righteousness? Are you, what does your life look like? He's not trying to tell them, like, hey, you need to get your acts together if you really want to prove you're born of God. He's trying to tell them, no, you can have assurance in your life. All the people practicing righteousness, you can know you're born of God. Look at these people who left. Look at their life. 
look at how they're living, you can tell by their life that they're not born of God because their life shows it. They're not showing God's characteristics. You guys can feel assured that you are born of God because of what your life looks like. And that doesn't mean everybody who has a good-looking life on the outside is born of God. But he's saying this is one of the tests you can look at. If you have an unrighteous life, pretty good chances you're not born of God or you're very uh, early on in that growth process. He's saying, look, you guys... You guys are actually the real deal here. And so if sin is decreasing and righteousness is increasing, that's one test. Is your life more in line with God's word rather than the world? Are you more defined by love of God and love for others instead of love of self? This can give us confidence that we're on the right path, which also gives us confidence for the day that Jesus returns to judge. And we can ask, are the things I'm believing producing righteousness in my life. If they're not, then we have reason to question, oh, I don't know if this is, I'm on the right path. I don't know if I'm really born of God. If the path of mind isn't leading to Christ and righteousness. And this talking about being born of God leads John to a deeper reflection on what it means to be God's children, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. But he still continues to talk about Jesus coming. Only now his focus shifts from judgment. This is Jesus coming as judge. How can he be confident on that day? And now he shifts to, okay, Jesus is going to transform us. He's going to save us from the presence of sin when he comes on that day. So let's reread verses uh, 1 through 3 in chapter 3. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so our first big idea principle from this is God's children look in wonder at their father's love for them. God's children look and wonder at their father's love for them. God's children look and wonder at their father's love for them. His command here, the first word in, in uh, verse 1, he says, See, see what kind of love the father has given to us. This is, that's a, this, you know, it's not even a command for us to really even do anything besides... Look, look at what kind of love the Father has given to you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's like, I, I just, you know, get, get your head, whatever you're focused on right now, you know, okay, you know, look, look up for a minute, look up for a minute. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You know, whatever you're focused on right now, just take a moment and see what kind of love the Father has given to us. What, what kind of love is that? That we should be called children of God. That's the command here. It's like, you don't have to do anything but see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And the NIV translates it saying, we're using ESV version here, that's what I'm reading from, but the NIV translation says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, he uses exclamation points. John wants them to get their attention on their Heavenly Father's love for them, specifically the love he's lavished on them, that we should be called children of God. And then he states it, and so we are. Just take a moment and see 
This is what you are. See what the love that God has given you. This is because God has saved us from the penalty of sin. We're no longer separated, no longer alienated, no longer condemned. But now that God has taken care of all of our sin, we're now brought into his family. And see what kind of love the Father has given you and lavished on you. And so do you ever pause and marvel at the fact that the Almighty God of the universe has given his love to you? He's chosen to set his love on you. Not because of anything you have done, that you've done nothing to earn it, you've actually done everything to not deserve it, that he's just chosen to set his affection, his delight, and his adoration on you. He's just chosen to do that. Not because of anything you have done. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Have you ever let yourself be filled with wonder that God is your Father and He loves you as His child? You are a child of God. And we are children of God. We are His sons and daughters. And John tells us to take a look at what kind of love the Father has given us. It's love that has made us his children. It's the love of a father for his children. And this next good big idea principle he gives us is God's children look less and less like the world. God's children look less and less like the world. This comes in the second half of verse 3. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Again, there's two types of people in the world. Those who know God as Father, and those who don't. Those who know God as their Father will feel less and less at home in the world because they look less and less like the world. God's children value what their Father values. They desire what their Father desires. They behave like their Father wants them to behave. They do what pleases their father. But the world lives contrary to their father. And so when the world looks at them, it doesn't know them because they don't know their father. They will no longer feel welcome in the world. The next big idea principle is God's children will look completely like Jesus in the future. God's children will look completely like Jesus in the future. God's children will look completely like Jesus in the future. And this is in verse 2. He says, Beloved, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And John teaches here that right now, we are God's children. He says, we are God's children now. So he says at the beginning of the verse, right now, God is our Father, and he loves us. We are members of his family. We are God's children. But then he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. We are already are God's children, fully loved, fully members of his family. What we are has not yet appeared. We are now, what we are now as God's children, what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's a future for God's children that isn't here yet. And what John knows is that that future, what we will be, will appear when Jesus appears. And God's children will be like Jesus because 
we will see him as he is. What's going to change us to be what we are going to be is seeing Jesus as he is, seeing Jesus in his resurrected, glorified state is what's going to change. Because Jesus is no longer human like us. He died and was resurrected into a new body, uncorrupted, untainted by sin. Sin is no longer, uh, his body is no longer you know, touched by sin in any way. He doesn't have the physical form that we have. He has a resurrected body, new creation. And that's the, what our state is going to be. And so seeing Jesus like that is going to transform us. When we see Jesus, when Jesus comes again, we will see him in the flesh and we will be transformed into his likeness. And that doesn't mean we'll all become Jewish males. Jesus is a Jewish male. When we see him, we're not going to be as he is in the sense that we're all going to turn into Jewish males, crucified Jewish males. Uh, It means we'll become like him in godliness, in holiness, in righteousness. Sin will be removed from us. We will no longer be corrupted and tainted by love new creation, resurrected bodies like him. And, And this is what it means to be saved from the presence of sin. When we trust in Jesus, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. And right now, we make every effort to sin less. We make every effort to sin less now and live righteous and holy lives as God's children now. But sin will still be present in our lives. We're still God's children because we have been saved from the penalty of it, but one day Jesus will come again to remove sin's presence from this creation. And it's already being removed from us as we are progressively growing to be more and more like him. But one day he will return and that work will be complete. And we've used these boxes over the past... We've only used two. We've used these boxes... Maybe made that one too big. We've used these boxes. So here, penalty. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence. And so we've talked about... Don't get distracted by my bad handwriting. So we've talked about how this is who we are in Christ, when we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are always, I'm not going to try to write anymore, but we are always uh, justified, declared righteous. We are forgiven. We are uh, new creations. We are adopted into God's family. We are always fully children. So this box is always full. This is who we are. We're always God's children, fully loved, declared righteous, uh, reconciled, forgiven. And we've talked about, okay, now, this is what I do. Does this box go up and down based on what I do? So I have a, you know, my week might go like this. Here was my, this was my weekly obedience. And then I had a really bad day. This is how I did in obedience this week. But my up and down in obedience doesn't make this go up and down. How God treats me and loves me and my forgiveness and my reconciliation and me being declared righteous doesn't go up and down based on my obedience because I have been saved from the penalty of my sin. This is who I am in Christ. But we talked about last week. Don't mind this dirty Kleenex back here. I'm just going to use. We talked about how last week we are being saved from the power of sin. So there is uh, 
we should be seeing, and we just saw, we are, he is righteous, we've been born of God, and so we are practicing righteousness. So there is a, there's kind of this upward, sin should be decreasing in our lives, and righteousness should be increasing. It usually doesn't have this straight upward and to the right. Usually it's a lot of like more ups and downs like this. That's kind of what our growth more so looks like. But we are becoming, as we grow as Christians, we're becoming more and more like him. We are being set free from the power of sin. This is what our growth looks like. But even when there's gaps and ups and downs, it doesn't change who we are in Christ. God fully loves us. We're still fully righteous. He's always for us, never against us. But one day, we will be fully like Jesus. There will be no more sin in our lives. We'll be set free from the presence of sin. So that there is this gap right now. This would be, you know, right now we are in Christ. So we have the status of Christ. We're becoming more and more like Christ. One day we will be fully like Christ in what we do. Even, even right now as we are treated as sons and daughters, like Jesus, fully adopted sons and daughters, we're becoming more like him in what we do. And one day we will be exactly like him in what we do, in our character, in our actions, in our attitudes. And so one day... Uh, these two things, these two things, will be in harmony because they'll both be who we are and what we do will be fully like Christ. But until that day, God still doesn't treat us as less than sons and daughters, even while we're in this process of becoming more and more like Him. And the three, you know, if you're curious about such things, uh, the three big words used for these are: this is justification, this is sanctification. This is glorification. If that confuses you, just ignore what I just said. But if you're curious about such things, those are the three uh, big theology words used for those um, those three things. And sometimes you find those three words used in the Bible. So if you're looking for those, and this is our this is a status and a position we're given. We're given a position before God that never changes. This is something that's progressively happening and it's going on over time. A status and a position that never changes. It's a progression that's happening, and this is something that will be given to us that will be complete at the end of time. And this whole creation is affected by sin and its curse, and God's promise is to make all things new when Jesus comes again. And so, we also say, one of our big idea principles, we also want to say that God's children look forward to Jesus' coming. God's children look forward to Jesus' coming. The Bible calls Jesus' coming our blessed hope, our living hope, our salvation, and our inheritance. Inheritance is a family word. God has planned an inheritance. For us, our Heavenly Father is gracious and generous and eager to give it to us. And so often I find myself putting my hope in things of this present world for my joy and my satisfaction, even in good things. And I find myself constantly disappointed. And do you ever feel that way? Like nothing quite lives up to your expectations. Maybe you feel like you never, nothing ever quite gets to where you'd like it to be. And you feel like people never quite live up to your expectations. You read the Bible 
and you see how God says things are supposed to be, or how people are supposed to be, or how you're supposed to be, and how we're supposed to live, and what the world is supposed to be like, and you look around and everything just falls short of that. And do you ever feel that way? Like, everything is just falling short. And nothing is the way it's supposed to be, and it's just all disappointing. And I feel that. And that's supposed to create in us a longing for Jesus to come back. Or maybe you're tired of hurting. Maybe you're tired of the pain you feel. Maybe you have suffering in your life, and you're worn out from the crying. Maybe you're worn out from the crying. Maybe you're tired of sinning and being sinned against. Maybe you're tired of seeing injustice and violence and oppression, poverty, greed, and evil in the world. And that's supposed to create in us a longing for Jesus to come back. And Jesus says that, Revelation 21 says that when Jesus comes back, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the, the former things, the things of this broken, sinful, cursed world will pass away because all things will be made new. And, and as we go into this election that we're going to be maybe you've already voted and maybe you're going to be voting I'm not going to tell you who to vote for the thing to remember is that every candidate wants to make you think that if they're in office, the world will be as it should be. If you vote for them, that they can put it all right, and you know your dreams will come true. According to the Bible, that just simply is not a promise that they can deliver upon. There's only one person who can deliver upon that promise, and he's already on the throne. And we're looking forward to his coming, when he will make all things new, when he will have Everything set right. And the final big idea of principle is that God's children look like Jesus more and more. We've already said God's children look like him more and more. God's children look like Jesus more and more. He says in verse 3, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. God's children look like Jesus more and more. As God is forming and shaping his children, Jesus is his blueprint for what he wants us to become. And as we are hoping in Jesus, he is pure and he is righteous. And as we hope in him, as we look to him, we become more and more like him. Remember, this whole, what I had you think about at the beginning is what we look at shapes what we look like. And John says, having us we're going to look like Jesus and he wants us to look at the Father's love for us and he wants to, us to be looking for Jesus' coming. And so what do you tend to look at? Just think about that. What do you tend to look at through a normal week, normal month, normal day? We tend to, if you're thinking through, we've been using this tree. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. hope that you become used to it by now. I know some of you have seen it a bit less than others, but this tree, if you're going to, if you're to go through this left side with the bad fruit, and you think about, I've got all this bad fruit in my life. Okay, what have I been looking at that's creating that bad fruit? 
What do we tend to look at? We tend to look at ourselves. We rely on ourselves for righteousness, for strength to change, for the future. And all this, you know, saved from the penalty of sin. We don't look to ourselves to save ourselves from the penalty of sin. For power. We don't look to ourselves for the strength to change. We look to Jesus to save us from the power of sin. What about for the future, for our future destiny? We look to Jesus to save us from the presence of sin. And so what do you look to? What are you looking at? Are you looking to yourself and relying on yourself? And what is that fruit is that creating in your life? And what do we look to? Do we look to others as our models and examples of who we want to be? You think like, oh, this person has success. Or this person is what I want to look like. This person has the house I want. This person has the whatever it is I want, the career I want. This person just looks how I want to look. And we look to them and then we start molding ourselves in their image. Or do we look to others for rest and comfort and peace? You know, thinking about the election. Like, if this person, if I just had these people in my office, you know, it's like I've drafted my team. If these people were in office, then I would have, oh, you know, that would be like the dream team. And I would have everything as I want it to be. Or do you look to, if this person would do this a certain way, then I would have rest and comfort and peace. Or this person would tell me these specific things about myself. Or whatever it is, then if I had this person in my life, then I would have rest and comfort and peace. Would, that's the person we're hoping in. Or do you look to the world to tell you who to be, what you should value, how you should act? And what is that putting in your life? What kind of fruit is that bringing? We take on the image of all these things. We, what we look to shapes what we look like. And discipleship, if we think about being disciples of Jesus, is all about where we put our eyes. What are we looking to? Discipleship is all about looking away from ourselves, looking away from the world, looking away from others and starting to look to God so now we can look at the world in a whole different way and be changed. And as we close, if there's one word, you know, we I want you to think about the action to change is what you look at. But if there's one word, I want you to remember uh, maybe two words, it'd be hope and better. Uh, that we've been given something better than any of the options that the world has offer us. We've been given a better hope, a better future, a better destiny, a better Lord, a better Savior, that the future we have is so much better. So this week, pay attention to what you're looking at. What does it do to you when you're looking at that? What does it make you like? What does it start to produce in you? And so often, what the biblical authors talk about, Paul is really good at this. He would say, like, okay, I'm going through a lot of stuff right now. I've been, you read about this guy's life and what he experienced. And then he says, These, this suffering is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory I'm going to have in the future. So he would always look past whatever it is he's looking at right in front of him. And he would look past and say, This is light and momentary compared to the weighty and eternal glory I'm going to have in the future. This is light and momentary, waiting glory. He would look past me and say, there's something way better coming. And so when we say, like, I just don't have anything to look forward to, Paul is always like, I'm looking forward to something way beyond what I'm feeling right now and what I see coming ahead of me. I'm looking forward to that. And that was what motivated his life. And so pay attention to what you're looking at this week. What does it do to you? What is kind of person is it forming into you? You forming you into what does it make you look like? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great, blessed hope you give us of Jesus coming back. Thank you for this imperishable, undefiled, 
unstained hope that will be given. Thank you for the inheritance. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen.